Um, okay, so welcome everybody, near and far. Uh, the uh, topic of these set of classes uh, is uh, King David as understood or as represented or as reflected or imagined in the Babylonian Talmud. Um, and when I say that, the David, King David, appears in several, uh, several sugyot, several discussions, agadic discussions uh, throughout the Talmud. Approximately 10 really hefty discussions of David. And David is mentioned in actually several other places as well. And I thought it would be interesting to look at the David of the Bavli, uh, both in terms of understanding or seeing how a character can be uh, re-understood or uh, re-represented -re in the text, uh, in, in later text. But on top of that, I think what's interesting in particular is how, um, how the Bible can be seen as a kind of interpretive tool. In other words, the stories of David, the representation of David, and we'll see this over the weeks, we won't cover everything, there's a lot here, but to a certain extent, the Bavli is actually also interpreting the text about David. Now, when I say the text about David, so the main text about David uh, is the book of Shmuel, book of Samuel that is, has a rather lengthy and complex discussion of, 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 the, of David. And it's fair to say, I think, at the outset, that the David who appears in the book of Shmuel is a very complicated character. Uh, there's a deep complexity to David. On one hand, he's represented with his flaws. He certainly is, in many situations, can be seen as highly problematic. On the other hand, I don't believe the book of Shmuel uh, presents only that side of, of, of David. I think the character of David in the book of Shmuel, with opportunity to see this, um, has a, a very positive side to it. And the text is moving, uh, uh, the text presents both sides of David in the book of Shmuel. Um, the character of David, though, appears in other books of the Bible. So, for example, in the, in the next book, which is the book of Kings, Sefer Mulachim, there David is the gold standard when the Book of Kings talks about the kings of Israel, how good or not good they are, there it says he was okay, but he wasn't, his heart wasn't, wasn't completely with God, as was David. On rare occasions, so-and-so was fully with God, uh, as, as was David. So David is sort of the gold standard. In the Book of Kings, it talks about David being whole with God, but it does mention in the Book of Mulachim, that except in the matter of Uriah Hachiti, this is a verse that we'll come to today, this evening, except in the matter of Uriah Hachiti, but the book of Mulachim suggests that except in this particular matter of Uriah, that's the story of Bathsheba, otherwise uh, David was complete and whole and a, kind of a sterling, of sterling character. I will say that when one reads the book of Shmuel, one can come to quite a different conclusion. And that's the conclusion I come to. 
Actually, it will be hopefully coming out with a book about Shmuel uh, in Hebrew. Um, and looking forward to that coming out within the next several months. And um, so that's the book of Malachim. The book of Divri Hayamim, in which David is a major character as a Shlomo, the book of, Malach, of Divri Hayamim presents a different picture of David. The story of David and Bathsheba doesn't appear at all in the book of Chronicles. And neither do many other stories which have a, a very uh, different side to them. The story of Avshalom is not in the book of Chronicles. The story of Adonia, who declares himself king while his father is dying, is not found in the book of Chronicles. The story of Nabal, the Carmelite, and Abigail was not in the book of Chronicles. In fact, the wars against the house of Saul are essentially not mentioned in the book of Chronicles. Saul himself is barely mentioned. So one might say that the book of Chronicles sort of cleans up David's act to some extent. And if one reads only the book of Chronicles, one gets a radically different picture of David. In fact, in the book of Chronicles, and we'll come to this in our look at the Talmud as well, David seems to be spending almost all his time either writing Psalms or working on the blueprints of the, uh, of the uh, temple. He does have a side job as king of Israel, but that's not his main preoccupation. And that's quite different from the David that appears in Shmuel, for example. Um, although there too, the temple is important. So we'll see this. In other words, the book of Shmuel itself has a very uh, multifaceted David. And I believe that the Talmud Bavli, that's the thesis of these sessions, the Talmud Bavli reflects that, but takes it very often in different directions, which I think are quite fascinating. And it also picks up on something in these different texts. And we'll have an opportunity to see that, hopefully. Uh, there also is the David of the book of, of, of Psalms, of, of the Tehillim. We have 150 Psalms. Most of them don't have any attributions, but many of them do. Mismoga David, with David Mismar, etc. Tehillah David. And several of the Psalms, it's either 12 or 13 of them, specifically refer to events that take place in David's life. When David was running away from Absalom, the third Psalm, uh, David, who is running from Saul, etc., uh, etc., et the Bathsheba story, Psalm 51. So there are multiple allusions or references to the book of Shmuel. And it's interesting to read the Psalms in light of the history that's given to us in the book of Shmuel, the narrative in Shmuel, and to look at the uh, various Tehillims is itself an interesting study. So my point, first point, prior to starting with the Bavli, is that even within the, the Bible, there's a kind of reinterpretation of David or, or a different picture of David that emerges from three and possibly four different books of the Bible. And it goes without saying, having said this, that in thinking about the David of the Bible, he is certainly one of the um, major characters of the Bible. There's a lot of, David's given a lot of space perhaps more than any other character. So there's something about that as well, and we'll have to take that into account as we, as we study uh, different texts from the, from the Bavli. Now, uh, when I say study different texts from the Bavli, I'm not gonna spend that much time going through these texts 
you know, line by line, which is a very worthy enterprise. But if we do that, we're not going to be able to do any of what I want to do, which is to think about how the Bible represents David. So the text, and we have about, hopefully get to about eight or nine different texts. We're not going to go through it every word and analyzing each word, but we will spend some time on that. But in Safari, you can have it in the English and the Hebrew. So uh, it's, it's a good thing to look at these texts on, on Safari. We'll be sharing that. And um, okay, so that's by way of a brief introduction. Uh, hopefully this is a course I never taught before. And uh, looking forward to uh, together with you to think about these uh, questions. I thought for, the, for this first class, we would focus in on a very famous uh, text from the Talmud Bavli. And one that I think is, has to be looked at very carefully. And that's the statement that's found in Masechet Shabbat on 56a. And there it says, um, on 56a, Amr of Shmuel Barnachmani, Amr of Yonatan. Uh, 56a, it's about towards the top. Let's find this. It's further down, further down. Down, 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 down. Keep going. Yes, that's it. That's right. Okay, this is it. Famous statement. Omer Rabbi Shmuel by Nachmoni, Omer Rabbi Yonatan. Omer David Chata, Eno Eretoe. Said, anyone who says that David sinned with Bathsheba, the references to the story of David and Bathsheba, is nothing other than mistaken. As it is stated, as it says earlier, and David succeeded in all his ways, and God was with him. Is it possible that sin came to his hand, and nevertheless the divine presence was with him? Here it says 1 Samuel 18, 14, I believe that's a mistake, actually. I think it's, chap I think it's chapter 8. 1 Samuel 18, 14, maybe that is correct, I, I take that back. How, is it possible that God was with him? And David sinned. So what does it mean to say when the prophet rebukes David? Why have you bazited, degraded the word of God to do evil? He intended to do evil, but he never did it. This is the famous statement in the Talmud. And the Talmud then goes on to question this. As we shall see, what do you mean David didn't sin with Bathsheba? And whoever says David sinned with Bathsheba, Enuel Toeh, is, is, is greatly mistaken. Now, who actually said that David sinned with Bathsheba? Whoever made such a statement? Well, I would say, first of all, God, uh, the prophet that God sends to David to rebuke him in chapter 12, as it says here, why have you degraded the word of God to do evil? And David's response, when accused of sinning, what does David respond? David, chatati Hashem. I have sinned against God. So God, God's prophet and David, all said that he has sinned. David says it himself. 
And I would add a fourth who says that David sinned, and that is essentially all of the Talmud Bavli. The Talmud Bavli itself uh, explicitly uh, talks about David sinning and in very striking language, hopefully we'll get to that. So the question is when you read the statement, Um Rabbi Shmuel Ba Nachmoni, Um Rabbi Yonatan, whoever says David sinned is mistaken, he, he wished to sin but did not. The question really is for us, what is the Talmud trying to say here? It's hard to believe, and I don't believe for a second, that Talmud is actually suggesting that he didn't sin when David himself says, Chatati Rashem, and the punishment which ensues in the book of Shmuel, and this is a very important point, that what happens to David after the Bathsheba story are all kinds of terrible things. The prophet himself said in chapter 12 of Shmuel that because you have, after David says, I have sinned unto God, God will forgive you, you will not die, but because you have done this, the sword shall not depart from you forever. And the prophet said to David, Nathan the prophet said to David, what you did, you did in secret. You did baseta, you did secretly, but I'm gonna get you, says God, as the sun shines, high noon. And one of your own household will sleep with your concubines publicly. That's what the prophet in chapter 12 says to David. And that is what happens in the story of David. The one who sleeps with David's concubines publicly is none other than David's sons, Absalom, Absalom, who takes an army and marches on Jerusalem. David has to run into exile runs away from Absalom who tries to kill him. And that's not the end of David's problems. That is a significant story in the book of Shmuel, and one that I think David never fully recovers from. But apart from the loss of, uh, of Absalom and the eventual death of Absalom, we have to remember that in the book of Shmuel, David's oldest son, Amnon, is killed by Absalom. Absalom himself dies. Uh, the, the child that's born from Bathsheba, after David sleeps with Bathsheba, who was married at the time to Uriah, that child dies, as the prophet has predicted. And later on, his fourth son, Adoniah, is killed by Shlomo in the beginning of the Book of Kings. So what David suffers, and David said when David is presented by the prophet in chapter 12 of Shmuel with a parable, there was a rich man, there was a poor man, and the rich man, stranger comes to town, chapter 12, and the poor man has one animal that he cares for, and the rich man has flocks and flocks, and the rich man takes the one animal of the poor man and gives it to the, to the guest. And David, what should be the rule? What's the law? And David said, that person deserves to die and should pay four times. He has no compassion, he's ruthless. And we remember, David says he should pay four times, and David loses four sons, actually. So, it is, one might say, inconceivable that anybody could possibly read the book of Shmuel and think that David didn't sin, they just intended to sin. That's out of the question. So the question really is, if we assume that as a starting point, what is the Talmud really after? What is the point of this statement? Whoever said David sinned is mistaken. Nothing than mistaken. Ain't a That's my point of departure. One can disagree. 
one can say that, no, I don't agree that Gemara really means that David didn't only intended to sin, but didn't really sin. By the way, the sin they're talking about here is the story of Bathsheba. Because in the Talmud Bavli, the Talmud accuses David of many other sins, including on this very page itself, that we'll see the, tonight or next week or whatever, we'll get there. So I wanted to suggest something about the statement, whoever said David sins is, not, is, 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 is simply mistaken. And that is a point about reading Agada in general. And one point about reading Agadah, reading Agada, is that what's very important in studying the Agadot is to look at the context. The immediate context, the broader context, the texts have many contexts. So let's talk about the, the more immediate context. The statement, whoever said David sins, is mistaken. And when you look at the Talmud, the Bavli, in Masechet Shabbat, what, what is very striking is that the statement, whoever said David sinned, is mistaken, is part of a set of those kinds of statements. So for example, it begins actually much earlier. Uh, let's see if we can find this. Um, 55b. Umrab Shmuel Banachmoni. 55b. Can we get 55b there? Towards the middle of the page. The same person is talking, Shmuel, the son of Nachmoni. Yes, this is perfect. So the, Shmuel, the son of Nachmoni, in the name of Yonatan, makes several such statements. Later he says, whoever says David sinned is mistaken. He starts by saying, whoever says Reuven sinned is mistaken. The Torah says that Reuven sleeps with his father's concubine, with Bilhah, in chapter 35. And as we remember, the end of the book of Genesis, end of Breshit, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he begins with Reuven, and he says to Reuven, who's the firstborn, I, I am going to strip you of the rights, the privileges of the firstborn. You have desecrated my couch. You desecrated my couch, my bed. The reference is to the verse in chapter 35 that Ruvain slept with Bilah. So the says he didn't really sleep with Bilah. He, 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 he moved Jacob's bed. And Rashi quotes this in Chumash as well, and it's well known. But the simple reading of the text is he slept with her. And for that reason, he's deprived of, of the birthright. So that's one of these statements. That's the first of the statements. And now we come to another one of the statements. The same person is talking. Omer Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmoni, Omer Rabbi Yonatan, Kola Omer Bnei Eli Chatu Enu Elatoah. Whoever says that the sons of Eli sinned is mistaken. As it is written, the two sons of Eli, Chatni and Pinchas, were priests of the Lord. Now, Let's read a little bit more. The Gemara explains, I'll read the English. Rabbi Yonatan holds in accordance with the opinion of Rav. Rav said, Pinchas did not sin. The verse juxtaposes Chavni to Pinchas. Just as Pinchas did not sin, so too Chavni did not sin. This is the second chapter of 1 Samuel. So the Gemara asks, how do I establish the meaning of the verse? Ewi was very old, 
Elie's the father, the high priest, and heard all that his sons did to all Israel, how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tent of meeting. Chapter 2, verse 22, which certainly indicates otherwise. That's clear. Answers the Gemara. Since the sons of Eli delayed sacrificing the bird offerings of women who had given birth, a pair of doves brought as a part of the purification process. And this delay caused the women not to go to their husbands in timely fashion. The verse ascribes to Chafli and Pinchas liability as if they had lain with them. They were guilty of nothing more than negligence and carelessness. Now, let me just stop you for a moment and reflect upon what it says over here. First of all, Chafni and Pinchas, for those who remember the book of Samuel, and the book of Samuel is actually critical for the study of David, obviously. The point is that Chafni and Pinchas, who are the sons of Eli, whom the text calls B'nai B'lial, wicked, the, the wicked or wayward or wicked children. And it says explicitly that when Eli rebukes them, they did not listen to their father, for God wished to, to, uh, to uh, kill them. And what's interesting is that in describing Chafni and Pinchas, the sins of Chafni and Pinchas, it always has the two together. That doesn't separate them. But what's interesting is that the sin for which they are held guilty is not what Ewe the priest hears about them. What Ewe hears about them is they're sleeping with the women who come to bring sacrifices, who assemble at the door of the tent of meeting. But actually, in the text of Shmuel, what they are held accountable for is that when people came to bring sacrifices, they would insist on taking the best for themselves and taking by force. And they insisted on top of that of taking their portion of the sacrifice, the priestly portion, before God's portion. They are described as sinning against the people and singing against God and taking things by force. That's what the text describes them as doing. What Ailey hears about them is something else. He hears about the women. Now, it is true that it doesn't say explicitly that Chafi and Pinchas did that, but the context is clear. And the, the main uh, anger of God is that they have uh, violated the, the temple and used the temple for their own purposes. So what's interesting is that the, the Gemara here in Shabbat focuses only on the question of the, of, of the women. It's very similar to David and Bathsheba. Whoever says David sinned is mistaken, refers to David and Bathsheba. But when you read the book of Shmuel, one could easily argue that there are many sins of David, missteps of David in the book of Shmuel, apart from the Bathsheba story. But the text is focusing on one particular story. In each case, it has to do with the women. And here, the Gemara's solution, what do you mean whoever said they sinned is making a mistake? It says they lay with the women. No, it doesn't mean they lay with the women. It means the women came to bring their sacrifices after giving birth. And the presumption over here is, and the, and the priest delayed bringing the sacrifices for whatever reason, they were negligent. And this delayed the women from going home and sleeping with their uh, 
with their with their husbands. <laughs> so it turns it on its head over here, actually. What is the sin? The sin is that they were, not that they themselves were involved, but they were delaying the, the opportunity for the women to go back to their husbands in timely fashion. So it's as if they had laid with them. Now the question you ask yourself is this. I think, among other things, what is going on over here? Ruvain, he never saved. Mishnah exists as a, as a force for service and as a force of, of, of government. Up to that point, Ailey is the leader, the leader of the people, the judge. They are the leading political institution in Israel. And she was destroyed on account of the sons of Ailey and, 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 and Ailey's inability to reform them. The sons of Samuel precipitate the kingship. Samuel is the leader, and the people went to Samuel and say, you're our leader, you're our prophet, you're our judge, but your sons are no good. We need to go a different route, and that precipitates the kingship. When it comes to David, when the prophet came to David, Nathan the prophet came to David, Nathan does not come to David to rebuke David. That's not true. Nathan comes to David to remove David. He's about to remove him the same way the prophet came to Ailey and removed Ailey, the same way the prophet goes to Saul in the book of Samuel and removes Saul. The prophet comes to David to remove David. In fact, the language, Madua Bazita, why did you degrade the God? You degraded God is the very language that the text uses in terms of Ailey. When Ailey is rebuked by the prophet in chapter two, Bozai, those that degrade me shall be held in light esteem and therefore the house of Ailey will be destroyed. So what they have in common is, these characters have in common, Solomon as well. Because as long as Solomon keeps the word of God, says God, your kingship will exist. When Solomon deviates at the end of his life, his wives uh, worship foreign gods and Solomon constructs idols for them on the very precincts of the temple. And Solomon's kingship, the kingship of David, is split in half. Most of the people sided with Yeravah ben Nevat and leave David. So you have five examples, for the first three are clear, where if there ever was a situation where punishment was meted out for misbehavior, it's got to be these three. They all lose their, they lose their position. Ruvain loses the birthright. The sons of Eli lose the priesthood as a political force. And the leadership of Samuel, the prophet, the leader, leading prophet, prophet who leads, ends with Samuel. His sons don't continue his path. There is no place in the Bible that's so clear of sin and, 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 and consequence. That's what they have in common. So actually, what does it mean to say that they didn't sin? We have an explicit, God's explicit response. So what is the, this text over here? What is, what is the text about when it says, they, whoever says they sinned is mistaken. Obviously they sinned, but what is the point of the text? So I want to suggest something about the point of the text. The point of the text is not to exonerate these people. That's the farthest thing from the mind of the Talmud, to exonerate the sons of Ailey. Why in the world would anybody do that? I'm making a different point. That the responsibility of leadership is very great. That it's not a matter of whether you technically sinned or not, but 
it's a matter of how you represent yourself and how you lead the people. And failure to do that results in very dire consequences. And, I, and here I want to make a point about the larger context of this set of statements by, uh, by this particular Amola. And that is, and this is important in studying Talmud in general, whether it's agadic sections or halachic sections, or often the interconnection between the two. And that is, if you go back to the, all this agadata in Tractate Shabbat, what is the broader context? Where does it all begin? And it actually begins, all of this is found in the fifth chapter of Shabbat, which deals with, it deals with the issue of, of, of carrying on on Shabbat. There's a prohibition to carry on Shabbat. And there's a prohibition not just for me to carry, but for my animals to carry things on them. And the Mishnah actually, Mishnah that appears earlier, says that what about if you have an animal, a cow let's say, and the cow has a strap between its horns. Is the cow allowed to go out on Shabbat if it has a strap between its horns? So there's a dispute. The rabbis of the Mishnah, which appears earlier, page 54, they say it is forbidden because this is a burden. The strap, the cow is carrying the strap. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, his cow, says the Mishnah, Parato Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, his cow went out on Shabbat, but the rabbis disagreed. He held that the strap on the horns of the cow is not a burden, which is forbidden to carry, but a kind of adornment, an ornament. An ornament is permissible, fundamentally permissible to wear ornaments on Shabbat. It's considered clothing. So that's the dispute in the Mishnah. The Talmud has the following statement, and this is found earlier in the Talmud. Talmud says, what do you mean the cow of Elazar ben Azariah? What do you mean the cow? That suggests he had one cow. But we know that Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah was an extremely wealthy man. He had thousands, if not tens of thousands of cows. So what do you mean his cow? That's the Gemara's question. So the Gemara answers, his cow, it wasn't really his cow. It was his neighbor's cow. It was his neighbor's cow. But because, and the neighbor's cow went out on Shabbat, not his, but because he didn't talk to her and tell her not to do that, he bears responsibility. Because he should have protested and he failed to protest. And when you fail to protest, you are held accountable for the other person's actions. This appears earlier. Uh, this is on the bottom of 54b. And that leads the Talmud into an entire discussion about protesting. And let me read to you, uh, it's a long discussion. And this is the context for these set of statements about whoever says X sins is mistaken. The uh, Talmud tells the following story. It's on 55a. Um, Talmud says the following. It's about on, on Nunayam and 55a, about 10 lines from the top. 
With regard to the issue of reprimanding, it was related. Rabbi Zeira said to Rabbi Simon, let the master reprimand the members of the house of the exilarch. Rabbi Simon had some influence over them. So the, the house of the exilarch in the, in the Bavli often is, is uh, misbehaving. So Rabbi Zeira said to Rabbi Simon, you're a person respected, you have some influence, why do you go over there and tell them that they're misbehaving? They're violent and not, not careful with the, in terms of the, their, their, their observances, etc. Tell them off. So Rabbi Simon said to them, they will not accept reprimand from me. I, if I reprimand them, it's not going to do any good. They won't listen to me. Rabbi Zeira said to him, let my master reprimand them even if they do not accept it. So Rabbi Zeva said, nonetheless, why don't you reprimand them anyway? Now this is actually, for those familiar with the Talmud, this is actually a very interesting statement because it seems to fly directly in the face of what is stated elsewhere in the Talmud. There is a mitzvah in the Torah to reprimand, to reprimand your uh, your, your, your neighbor, your friend, and that's a mitzvah called tochacha. But the Talmud says that the mitzvah to reprimand only applies in a situation where you think the person's going to listen. But if you think the person is not going to listen to you, it's better to say nothing. Because since the person will not respond positively, by reprimanding, the person incurs more, more, more guilt. In the words of the Talmud, it's better that they are, as it were, not violating it intentionally, even though it's intentional to some extent, they know what they're doing, but they're not directly flying in the face of a warning. So we have the stated position, which appears more than once in the Talmud, that if they're not going to listen, if someone's not going to listen to you, do not reprimand that person, be silent. Better to be silent than to reprimand somebody who's not going to listen. This state, this Gemara in Shabbat 55a seems to, to directly contradict that idea. Because here it says that Rabbi Ziva said to Rabbi Simon, reprimand them. They're not going to listen to me. Said Rabbi Zira, do it anyway, even if they do not accept. So what is that actually about? Is it possible? You could, of course, say that the two Talmudic statements disagree. Happens very often. But in general, I would say, certainly the way uh, many have learned for the last thousand years, and this is a rabbinic tradition, we try to reconcile. So how can we reconcile the statement over here, which flies in the face of several Talmudic statements, which say precisely the opposite? And um, actually heard when I was back in Yeshiva, my first Rebbe, to whom I have a great debt, actually, he made the following suggestion. He suggested that perhaps the difference is that to reprimand a person, an individual person, who's not going to listen, that we don't have to do. Maybe you should not do. But this is different. This is not just a person. This is the exilarch. This is a person who has a position of a kind of a position of, 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 uh, of authority. 
And when it comes to someone who has a position of authority, who in a sense represents the, uh, the uh, community, one might say more broadly, when it comes to issues of, issues of policy, then perhaps we are required to protest policy we feel is wrong, even though we know that no one's going to listen. Because we, we can't simply abide that kind of policy if we do nothing. And in effect, we're saying that we go along with it. And when it comes to public officials, policy, and those kinds of things, there's an obligation to reprimand. But my point over here, and I'll stop for a moment afterwards in comments, questions, or whatever, is that the larger context of the sugya is about people in, people in positions of, of, of power, people in positions of office, uh, about responsibilities that, that the community has towards them of accepting or not accepting what, what, is, what is wrong. And by the same token, responsibilities of people in power to make sure that people are doing the right thing. Because over here, the issue is they're not going to listen. But if you're in a position where people will listen, that is to say, you're in a position of authority, a position of power, you're the king of Israel, and you have enormous power, then there's a particular obligation to use that power wisely, use it appropriately, and failure to do so, that is, do nothing, actually, when it comes to, to people in positions of, of authority, is accounted a, uh, a, a grievous sin. And it strikes me that this is exactly what, the, what these Tamiluk statements are about. They're not here to exonerate anybody. And as I said, nobody could possibly think, could imagine, that the Talmud is interested in defending the sons of Ailey. But it's a, it's a different point. It's not that they sinned. It's that they did, they, it's that they did not use their, they weren't thinking about the other person, but that made the other person's life more, uh, more, uh, more, more easy about thinking about how the other person lives, that failure is accounted a sin, for which, of course, the house of Ailey is actually destroyed. Now, of course, the, the Talmud knows very well that in the text of Samuel, that's not the main problem altogether. The main problem is the way they treat the temple, the way they treat God, and the effects of what they do. They're taking their portion first. So one might say that's not a grievous sin, but it is a grievous sin because it's defiling the temple. And when these people do this, they're making a statement about the temple and about themselves. The temple is there to serve me. I'm not there to serve the temple. So it strikes me that when you read the larger sugya, look at the larger context, which is about obligation to, to protest, which is about the responsibility, which is placed upon peoples of power, peoples in position to do good, that that's what the sugya is actually about, and I doubt if the Bavli here in Shabbat ever dreamed that people would take seriously that David didn't actually sin. Now we'll come to that story of David in, in a minute and read it more carefully, but uh, I want to pause for a moment. If anybody wants to speak up or comment, please do now. Just unmute yourselves and talk up. Rabbi? Yes. 
Rabbi, um, this is Sandra. Hi. Yes. Um, would this be would this be a reflection then of the theme, the larger the, the theme that pervades Genesis and sort of settles right on um, Judah's shoulders? Uh, the response, uh, which of course, uh, you know, Judah being the progenitor of of David and all that, but uh, of the concepts of stepping up and saying. Uh, I am responsible, um, taking responsibility for, for uh, Joseph, taking responsibility for what he did to Tamar. Um, and then that this is sort of the progenitor of the, quote, responsibility um, sin um, that, that really will follow the house of Judah. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think that even in the book of Samuel, because at the end of the day, David confesses his sin. When the prophet came to David and said, with the parable of the rich man and the poor man, and the poor man has only one possession, one dear possession, and the rich man has many possessions. And David said, that David gets very angry, doesn't realize it's himself. Person deserves to die. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And David said, I have sinned against God. And I think that the point, is, it's precisely the same point from the other side, which is that what's actually important for the book of Samuel, what's critically important is that the leader be able to recognize the mistakes. Because I think the book of Samuel presumes that people in power, by the very nature of power, and the uh, illusion of power, and the attraction of power, are going to sin. The, the, the book of Samuel has no uh, question that those people that seek power are going to sin. So the only question is, having, having sinned, having erred, having made mistakes, are we capable of understanding what's wrong and trying to correct it? And that one of the very positive sides of David, we'll get to this in other texts that reflect this, is David's ability to say chatati, which is absolutely critical. And yes, it comes, he shares that with, uh, with, uh, with, with Judas, then Tamar. He puts it into play, and David does as well. David saying, I have sinned unto God is not limited. It's in no way confined to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. It appears later in a different story in Samuel in a very critical place that the Bavi is going to pick up on. So I think that's a very important point. It's really about the book of Samuel has no illusions about, about power, not, none whatsoever. In fact, since you made that point, I would point out something else about this set of, of, of statements in, in the Bavli in this context. And that is that the Bavli has the following statement. The Bavli talks about, about, punish, about, about death as a kind of punishment. And just before you get to the statement that we began with, the set of statements, whoever says moving sin uh, is, is making a mistake. Uh, Prior to that, we have a little statement on 55b, rather remarkable statement. Four people died, four people died not having sinned. They died because the lot of the human is, 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 uh, is, is to die, is mortal. People are mortal. Four died without transgression. Four died without transgression. Who are the four that died without transgression? It's very striking, actually. So the Talmud says, the four that died without transgression, who are they? So there were four. One is um, Binyamin, 
Benjamin. Ben, Arba Meitu Biat Yoshanachash. Yehuheim. Towards the top of 55b. Benjamin. Benjamin Ben Yaakov. Amram. Moses' father. Uh, Yishai. David's father. And the fourth is Kilov Ben David. And Kilov, the son of David. These four people died not having sinned. It's right here. Arba to be et That's a statement in the Bible which immediately precedes the list of people who are, who we mistakenly think sinned. Now, when you read this list over here, Benjamin, Amram, Yishai, and Kilov, and of course we ask ourselves the question, what is the Talmud, what is this Agada trying to teach us? That's always the key question. What are they trying to teach me here? And when you read this list, one name jumps out at you, I think. What name jumps out at you? Benjamin, Amram, Yishai, and Kilov, the son of David. Tell you what jumps out at me. Kilov. First of all, who is Kilov? Kilov, David has many sons. His oldest son is Amnon. He's the guilty party in Amnon and Tamar. He's, he's killed by his brother, Absalom. Absalom is son number three. He's killed by Yoav in, in rebellion against David. Son number four is Adonia. He's killed by Solomon in the struggle for kingship after David's death. Kilov is son number two. And what the Bavli no doubt is noticing is that when it comes to the question of succession, and, and it's a bloody story, the key players in succession are son number one, son number three, and son number four. But son number two, Kilov, who's the son of Abigail, is never mentioned. He's not involved apparently at all in the struggle for succession. And that, I think, is the tip-off to what's going on over here. Four died without sin. The first is Benjamin, Binyamin. We're starting now the book of Breshit, and we read about the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rebecca and Rachel and Joseph, the great Joseph narrative. And at the, at the center of the Joseph narrative, one of the characters is Benjamin. Well, there's something very striking about Benjamin in the book of Genesis. And what's striking about him is he never says a word, not one word. The magical goblet is found in Benjamin's sack. The brothers speak up, take us as slaves, Judah speaks. What does Benjamin say? Nothing. Is Benjamin there when the brothers sell Joseph? Probably not. How do you know? Doesn't talk. He never says a word. Amram is Moses' father. What did God say to Moses, the burning bush? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amram doesn't exist. Moses is the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a very deep point. That's an important point. Yishai, Yishai is David's father, but Yishai is completely disconnected to David. When the prophet Samuel goes to the house of Jesse to anoint a king, David's not even there. Yishai didn't even feel fit to, uh, to uh, invite David to the party. And later in the story of David and Goliath, Yishai sends David to bring, to bring things 
to bring, uh, to bring food to his three brothers. Go and see if they're okay. That will come up and get to it this week or next week in the David Batsheva story you hear. In other words, what is the point then? These are four people who are completely uninvolved in the struggle of Joseph and the brothers, which is a struggle for supremacy, which is a struggle for power. Joseph is an ambitious person. His dreams are the sun, the moon, and the stars bow down to him. The brothers bow down to him. Moses is involved in freeing the people and giving us a vision. David is the great king. Jesse's completely uninvolved. And there's Kilov. He's the, he's the key to it. Everybody else is fighting for power. Son one, son three, son four. What happened to Kilov? He's completely... How do you stay clean in this world, says the Talmud? You, you can only stay clean in the world if you're uninvolved. If you get involved in society, in trying to shape society, in trying to govern society, which I don't think the Talmud thinks is a bad thing. These are our heroes, actually. Moses and David and Abraham. These are, these are movers and shakers. These are shapers. But it always comes with a cost, which is a loss of innocence. If you stay uninvolved, you can be totally clean. You can die only because of the snake. You're not a sinner. If you live in this world, which is a dirty place, you're going to be a sinner one way or the other. And there's no way to avoid it. They committed no sin. That's exactly the point. Because of the snake, when God said to the snake, this week's parsha, mortality is a function of being human. That's the point. They're not dying because of sin. But if you're involved, whatever it is, in Shiloh, in internal family conflict about leadership in the family, that's Ruvain, or kingship with David and Solomon, or, or, or following your father's footsteps as judges, as leading judges, the sons of Samuel, etc. You're dirty, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It means you're a human being. But these four, they went on a different path. They, they, they're not involved in these kinds of struggles. And my point over here about this Agadita, and we'll have to now turn our attention to what it says about David and Bathsheba, this is by way of introduction to these seven classes. Uh, the really interesting stuff comes later, actually. The incredibly fascinating stuff about David comes not so much in this sugya, but I wanted to dispel what some people say about the sugya. Number one, that the sugya in no way suggests what people think it suggests, and number two, the Bavli in general goes in a completely different path when it comes to David. Uh, and it sees in David, and there's some, I find incredible psychological insights into David that we can mine from the Talmud Bavli. But my larger point about reading these texts is, and it's true about the halachic texts as well, but it's true about the Agadah. And that is, we have to take a broader view and see the context, the larger context of the, of the Bavli, of the Talmud. And that literary analysis is not confined only to the, to the Bible. Uh, but there's a literary analysis of the Mishnah, and there's a literary analysis of the, of the Talmud, and the way the Talmud, especially the Bavli, which is a literary work, tells the stories is very significant. Okay, so we have like five minutes left now. So let's just, first of all, does anybody want to speak up now? And then I'll just conclude 
And next week, we'll just, the plan for next week is to, uh, just to get back to the text we started with, whoever said David sinned is mistaken, to see what the Talmud says about that, and then to move to a set of, which is the main focus, a set of very interesting texts in a different tractate, in tractate Sanhedrin, about a story that the Bavli sees as central to understanding David and central to interpreting the book of Samuel, which is, we'll get to that next week. We're very much looking forward to that. Uh, but before we just conclude here, if anybody wants to speak up or comment, please do. Okay, yes. Uh, so I'll, let me just complete conclude. And then afterwards, there'll be more time if people want to speak up. Those who want to stay here, stay on, can speak up. Uh, Back to 56a, whoever said David sinned uh, is mistaken. Fine. So the Gemara says, what are you talking about? The prophet said to David, why have you, why you have degraded the word of God? No, it meant that he intended to do it, but he didn't actually do it. Then the Talmud continues. Then it says, that you, you, you killed Uriah by the sword. You killed Uriah by the sword. So what do you mean? He did? It went further down, right? Right? Um, you, you killed Uriah the, the Hittite. So he's accused of killing him. So to which the answer is, You should not have killed him yourself. You should have brought him to court for an offense that he did. What offense did he do? We'll see this in a second. Right? Um, and then it says, Etishtoakhti, who took his wife, Batsheva, to which the Talmud says, We kuchim you have you, you have the right to marry her. How could that be? She was married to Uriah. And the Gemara quotes another statement, Shmuel Banachmoni, the same person. Whoever went out to war in David's army would write a, a, a bill of divorce to his wife in case he would be killed. The commentaries disagree exactly how that worked, but bill of divorce to his wife. So technically speaking, since Uriah never returned from, from war alive, I mean, David made sure he didn't return alive, but since he didn't return alive, she was technically speaking not a married woman, so he wasn't guilty of sleeping with a married woman. Okay. Now the Talmud continues, um, and it says a little further down, um, and you killed him with the sword of Ammon. The sword of Ammon, you're not going to be punished for, because you didn't do it. You ride the Hittite, you will not be punished. So the Imam says, why not? It's further down. Why wouldn't you be punished for killing Uriah the Hittite? What do you mean judge him in court? What did he do wrong? Says the Talmud, he rebelled against the king, Moreid Malchut. He was a traitor against the throne. How was he a traitor against the throne? So, because he said, uh, and here's a dispute again amongst the, amongst the commentaries, he, he referred to, how can I, David instructs Uriah to go back to his wife. He instructs him to go back to his wife, because if Uriah goes back to his wife, early in the pregnancy, nobody will know who the real father is. But Uriah refuses to go home. And David says, why don't you go back home? Um, he says, how can I go back home to my wife when my, my Lord Yoav and the soldiers sleep in the field together with the ark? 
So the Talmud says, um, so he, he was disobeying David. He was disobeying David. He rebelled against the king and therefore was guilty, uh, was guilty of the crime of Moreh B'malchut. The king had the right to kill him. Now, when you read this, of course, you have to wonder what the, what the, what the Gemara is actually thinking. Because it's obvious from the story that what Uriah says is, of course, correct. That the narrator, the implied author, fully agrees with Uriah. And we know that David is simply trying to uh, evade his own responsibility by sending him home. And in point of fact, even if one reads this as a kind of critique of David, how could I go back to my wife and sleep with my wife, talking to the man who slept with his wife, namely David, I think the reader says, maybe it's an intentional critique of, you, of David, maybe it's not. But in any event, he's right. Anybody who reads this understands very well that Uriah is represented in the story as true blue and uh, that the guilty party here is David and Uriah's statements we cast a negative light upon David. So what you have to wonder about is in, in, in somehow def in, the, in, the, in, in defending David's behavior, he was technically speaking not guilty because, with Bathsheba, because technically she's not married. Why is she not married? Because Uriah wrote a, wrote a, a, a bill of divorce again on the condition that if he dies, she's not married. And, she, and in fact, he died. Or yes, he died. But David killed him. David killed him with the sword of Ammon. And what's interesting is in reading this, and I'll just want to leave you with the following thought about what is going on in these texts over here. Because anybody who reads this, we just conclude with the following thought. The prophet said to David, when David said, such a person deserves to die, which is chapter 12. And the prophet said to David, you are the person. It's you. You're the person. You killed Uriah with the sword. And you took for yourself his wife. And you killed him with the sword of Ammon. Now the Gemara here reads it, you killed him with the sword of Ammon. So you're not really that guilty. You're not really going to be punished because you didn't really kill him. You killed him with the sword of Ammon. That's the, that's the reading in the Bavli. But anybody who reads the text of Shmuel, of course, understands that the book of Shmuel is saying exactly the opposite. Not only did you kill him yourself, not only did you kill him, you killed him by the sword. doesn't matter who actually used the sword. You did it. Not only that, and on top of that, you took his wife. But, but the third thing is, and you killed him with the sword of Ammon, which is doubly bad. You killed him with the sword of Ammon. You used the war against Ammon for your own purposes. And not only that, there's something else in the story, which the Bavi, I think, is well aware of. And that is, not only did you kill him, but you killed him with the sword of Ammon. You, did it in a, you acted in stealth and secrecy and deception. That in the story of David and Bathsheba, yes, it's about murder. Yes, it's about adultery. But for the book of Samuel, is another crime, which in a certain way is even worse. And that is to deal in a way which is deceptive and, and dishonest. And, and, and that for the leader is 
is, is devastating. You can't have a, a leader who is dishonest. I mean, the point about leadership, the, the right leadership is, is, is someone who's honest. Yes, we have a problem. We deal with the problem. Of course, the crimes of murder, adultery are serious crimes. We'll come back to that in the Bavli. The Bavli knows this in spades. But I think the point over here of this whole section, which is about leadership, it's about rebuking, it's about responsibility. And the point is, you killed them with the sword of Ammon. And I want to just leave you with the following thought, which is, and we'll come back to this later, because others have suggested different, a different interpretation. But to me, in reading these texts, what the Bavli is doing is reminding us, in a sense, of the Pshat. No, no rational person would ever think this is what the text actually means, and the Bavli knows that. So what the Bavli is saying is, yes, we are well aware of the fact, we know what it means, and you know what it means. But we're going to make a different point. But don't think for a moment that the point that, that we are making dislodges the plain meaning of the text. We understand that you know and we know what the text actually says. We're, we're going to use these texts for our own purposes. And the purpose it wants to use it for is to place upon the leadership kind of awesome responsibility of honesty and a responsibility which means you are responsible not just for what you do, but what you cause others to do or what you don't prevent from happening, which is how the sugi actually starts. If you don't prevent it, and you are in a position to prevent it, I can't prevent it, it says to have Simon, but you have power. You could possibly prevent it. And therefore, you better speak up. And even if you can't prevent it, you better speak up too. Because that's your role as a leader. That's what this sugi is actually about. David is one example. The sugi didn't start with David. And the sugi, as we'll see next week, doesn't end with David either. So this is by way of introduction to David. I want to start with this very well-known Gemara in Sechah Shabbat. We will... Um, Continue this a bit next week, and then we'll move to what is one of the core sugiot, which is in Mesechet Sanhedrin. Um, the, um, so we're going to stop at this point, and uh, if anybody wants to stay and have a couple of questions, I'm happy to listen. Otherwise, hope to see you next week, and thank you. Hello? Yes. Um, this goes back to, to Ruben. And uh, well, first off, thank you so much. There's so much in these uh, le lessons. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll say this, and it's maybe obvious already to you. Maybe, maybe you can expound upon it. But Reuben was the first firstborn directly because Leah's was switched in Yaakov's bed by Lav, Levan. Yes. And then later, Reuben switches his father's bed for Leah yes. a, a second time. That's it, a very important a, point. You it, made a very a, good point. It's, it's that is a hundred percent excellent point. That when the Medrash says that Ruben didn't actually sleep with her, mm. it's a wonderful point. I was going to mention this. I didn't want to digress too much. Mm. When the Medrash says that Ruben didn't actually sleep with Bila, he just switched the bed. Mm. And the point is, on one hand, it's saying he didn't sleep with her. Mm. But on the other hand, it's making a different point. Switching Jacob's bed is not a small thing because the whole idea of switching the bed for Jacob recalls for him what is a pivotal moment in the life of Jacob and the life of his family, which is the switching of Rachel and Leah, which is a, which is a direct cause of all the family conflicts. 
Right. It's the Red Cross of the fight of Joseph and the brothers. Mm. So it's an excellent example of how a medrash says something. And you have to think about it more deeply, as you have done. And to understand that there's more than one side over here to what they're saying. It's this, but not that. But the this is also devastating. Mm. And we have other examples. Perhaps we'll come across this with David. We have a couple of very good examples of that in terms of David's behavior. Uh, again, we, uh, the focus is going to be on, on the, on the, the Bavli's understanding of David. But, but of course, you can't really appreciate what the Bavli's doing, unless to some extent we are focused on, on, the, on the text of David in the book of Samuel. And there's other stories as well, and very positive stories of David that we'll get to towards the end. I want to leave the positive stuff to the end, but the Bavli sees David as a very nuanced and a very human character. We'll see this next week or in two weeks. The Bavli has a kind of psychological profile of David, which I think we can all, we can all appreciate, I think. I find it very powerful and very, and very real. Okay, so we'll stop at this point and hopefully continue next week. And thank you for joining. Looking forward.